Like for example, they they now we now know very clearly that the Holocaust uh, took, takes about four generations to iron deep trauma out of a family. Wow. Yeah, it takes literally four generations. So we now have the first generation of Jewish people that are emerging away from uh, without the 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 layer of the Holocaust sitting behind their subconscious. Right. It takes like four generations to do that. So India, with all the trauma it's been through over thousands of years, there's no mechanism to solve for that. And what they do is they jump right past that emotional layer to the spiritual layer, and they become really spiritual, um, uh, Vedic and enlightenment, and they meditate and all the rest of it. But you're, you ha- you can't ignore that emotional relational. You have to solve for that. Right. And so it sneaks out. It, it comes out in... in um, um, uh, tribal issues and uh, gender violence and uh, all sorts of other ways. And now I think I think the whole of India should take psychedelics and just cleanse it all out in one shot. Right? <laughs> and that's now that's now possible. That was just never possible before. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and Thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, The device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. 
Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC-denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Salim Ismail, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Great to be here. Great to have you. Um, first, got exposed to your work through Mr. Diamandis. I saw you two having a conversation that was very insightful and thought I just had to get you on. Um, by way of quick introduction, and I, I'd love for you to give me a, a longer version of your career after this. You've been the head of innovation at Yahoo, founding CEO of Singularity University, author of the book, Exponential Organizations, and you are a board member of the XPRIZE. Um, I know you've had quite the stellar career, so maybe we could spend just a couple of minutes kind of doing an overview of that before we dive in. Uh, sure. So um, I'm actually originally from India. Um, parents emigrated to Canada when I was young, did my school and university there. I went to Europe for 10 years, and I've been in the U.S. for about 20 years, so I'm pretty confused. Um, and, uh, um, I did some tech entrepreneurship building a couple of them, um, web 2.0 startups in that world, and then ended up as the head of innovation at Yahoo, uh, which I was there for a couple of years until Microsoft tried to buy it. And I went from that to helping build out Singularity University, uh, did that for about seven years. And which is why I met Peter and got exposed to all the madness of what's happening with technology. And on the back of that, wrote this book, basically saying the way we organize ourselves is completely changing between the 20th century and the 21st century. And let's document that and, and look at it. And then a few years ago, Peter asked me to join XPRIZE uh, because we use the prize model in a lot of the work we do building an ecosystem. So that's the very quick summary. Very cool. And then the, the book, Exponential Organizations, um, what is that about exactly? So uh, our traditional organizations in the 20th century derived from the military or top-down hierarchical pyramid command and control uh, structures. And they're geared for two outcomes. They're optimized for efficiency and predictability. Mm. Right? If you're McDonald's, you want the same uh, raw materials to ship to every uh, burger play, uh, joint in the in the world on time, et cetera. And the, as we enter a kind of a volatile world um, that I call... 20 Gutenberg moments, that's very, uh, lots of things are happening very disruptively. You need to be architected for agility, flexibility, adaptability, speed. And you need to be able to scale your org structure as fast as you can scale technology. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, and we noticed that over the, uh, from about 2007, 2008 onwards, the way we were building organizations uh, initially in Silicon Valley, but now globally, was completely different to how they've been doing it before. And I was totally fascinated by that. Like, how is this so completely different? TED using its community to scale, uh, Uber not hiring its own staff, Airbnb leveraging out the people's assets. So we uh, researched the 100 fastest growing unicorns at the time and uh, said, okay, how are they doing it? What mechanisms are they using to scale? And that emerged inductively what we now call the EXO model, which is a uh, kind of character, set of characteristics uh, on the that these organizations use to scale incredibly fast. Mm. Uh, and over time, over the years, it came out in late 2014. Over the years, we've seen just staggering results as people map to this model more and more. And we now are pretty clear that over the next decade, every organization in the world 
every government department impact project, nonprofit, et cetera, will be structured in this way because it's just better. Um, and so that's basically the thesis of the book. Interesting. And so we're going through a, a paradigm shift is a very abused term, but it does seem like it's the change of an age. I often describe it as the shift from the industrial age into the digital age. Yeah. And the the rough analogy I like to to ruminate on is if you tried to talk to someone in the agricultural age about all of the products of the industrial age, you wouldn't even have the language, right? You'd be like right. buildings, glass, steel, flight airplanes. Like the technology is the technological landscape is so fundamentally different that you couldn't even communicate with people. And so it seems like we're sort of going, we're doing another one of those, right? From industrial age into the digital age. Um, yes, and I think it's an even bigger transformation. I think this is the biggest transformation that humanity will ever have have navigated, hmm. um, and the hardest uh, because it's just so huge. For example, for ten thousand years, every organization, every business in the world was focused on scarcity. Mm-hmm. Right? If you didn't have scarcity, you didn't have a business, mm-hmm. uh, or you created artificial scarcity, like the luxury goods business, to try and ma- manage that. And yeah. now we're f- coming into a world of abundance. Mm. Uh, and we organize completely different for that for that world. And there's a profound shift happening, and people have a very difficult time getting out of that soup, uh, the fishbowl. If you're in the fishbowl, you don't see the water. Right. Yes. Right, into a completely different fishbowl. You don't have the language. You don't understand it. And it's it's a little bit like the the agricultural to industrial, and the industrial to the information. But I think it's it's just as big as it could possibly be because it challenges every notion by which we evolved yes right we evolved to to optimize for scarcity right uh, and yet we're now coming coming into abundance of say for energy for example yes so yeah I, I like the fish analogy i often draw on that one myself when we're talking about money it's like you're trying to describe water to a fish that's never broken the surface because right we're, we're just in this paradigm right well, yeah. okay. I have to double click on a couple of those terms though. Abundance, scarcity. Yeah. What do you mean when you invoke these terms and what is changing? Is it just our relationship to these notions or the notions themselves changing? Uh, both. Let me give you two examples that I find interesting. We uh, evolved representative democracies a few hundred years ago when information was scarce. If you're in Washington, D.C., you had literally no idea what was happening in California. The speed of horse was as fast as you can right. find out. This is why Congress meets occasionally to give people a ride across the country to, to for them to say, hey, here's what my people are thinking. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's a scarcity of information. You have no idea what's happening over there. Mm-hmm. Today, we have an abundance of information, misinterpreted, faked, uh, uh, um, um, misused. And every major democracy in the world is broken as a result of this abundance of information. Interesting. Because now we have infinite knowledge of what's happening in across the country. Um, uh, the representative coming over is is such an outdated concept. Uh, and so how do we deal with that? We don't have good models for navigating that abundance of information. Right. So that's a one way of looking at it. I'll, the most obvious one for me is energy. Um, we've been operating on a scarcity paradigm for energy for thousands of years. We burned wood that was limited. We uh, found oil and that was great for a while, but we're kind of getting to the limits of that. Now we have solar energy that is on track to deliver us abundance of energy. So uh, solar energy is doubling. So at Singularity University, we were focused on doubling patterns. 
Mm -hmm. right? Where are there Moore's law type effects in new uh, technologies? We have a dozen technologies that are now doubling in their price performance the way computation has been doing every 18 months like Moore's law. Um, and this is something we've never seen before. This is in the history of humanity at any time, maybe one technology was accelerating or another. Today, we have a full dozen accelerating, right? The the resolution at which we can image the brain is doubling every year. Um, drones are doubling every nine months in their price performance. Um, gene sequencing is doubling every six months. Uh, solar energy is doubling every 22 months. Wow. So a solar energy system that can output X amount of power 22 months later is outputting 2X that power. 22 months later is outputting 4X that power. Wow. Um, and this has been happening for 40 years. So you can actually watch, graph that curve, which is what Ray Kurzweil is so famous for. If you ride that curve out, um, we we are now within seven years of hitting a tipping point where we can generate as much energy from solar as we need for our entire energy needs for the planet. Wow. Right? So so now we have uh, infinite. Now imagine we can deliver 100% of our needed energy in in seven years, but it's doubling roughly over two years. So in Nine years, we're delivering 200% of our needed energy. In uh, 11 years, we're delivering 400%. In 13, uh, you know, 13 years, delivering 800%. And that just keeps going. And so this is the raised genius insight. Once you have a doubling pattern, it just keeps going. So we will be a wash in energy in the next few years. Now, not all applications switch to solar. Uh, um, airlines need jet fuel for the energy density and, and cargo ships. But the, the last oil crash, of, oil price crash a few years ago was was because of a two percent oversupply in the market. It's a very tightly wound market, so it doesn't take a lot for that to completely unwind. Um, this is why Putin is invading Ukraine now, because in a few years he'll have no currency left. The price of oil and gas will crash as we hit that abundance. Right? Wow! I didn't. So I this is why he's doing it because he has to do it now. And and wars have this convenient habit of uh, raising the price of energy. Um, so if you just think about energy, which has been scarce for the entire history of humanity and is about to become abundant, almost all our wars are fought over energy, Yes. right? So if you have an abundance of energy, well, this has more unbelievable implications. This is before we even talk about fusion, by the way, right? right. Um, you have an abundance of energy. Um, the, the Middle East dynamics change completely. I, I'm Canadian. 40% of exports are oil, so the Canadian economy is toast. Um as a Canadian, I joke the U.S. has to find other reasons to go to war. Uh, so there's there's that kind of uh, fun around it. And it completely changes everything. So that's one little example, and that and the democracy with information. And we've got about 60 of those examples. So when I talk about abundance, and Peter is the pioneer in thinking and framing this, uh, it it's really uh, all of our world and our history was optimized around, you know, um, uh, get going out there and hunting down that boar that you needed to yeah. feed your family for the next three days. And you didn't know where your next uh, set of meals was coming from. If you couldn't hunt, you were in trouble. It was literally a, a survival uh, risk. Uh, if you hurt your leg and you couldn't run, you had a huge issue. Mm -hmm. So then you band together as villages to, so that people can support each other. Everything in our world, everything in our biology, everything in our evolution is focused on scarcity. Right. Right. Trees fighting out uh, which plants have access to the light, etc. So yeah. you shift that to abundance, and like we've never seen this before. 
Right. Um, it completely changes the game. We it's so much so that we can't conceive of it, imagine it. So we keep trying to frame it in our old patterns. Wow, that's super fascinating on multiple levels. Um, one, one quote immediately came to mind as you were describing the doubling patterns. I don't know who said it, but something to the effect of the greatest inability of the human mind is our inability to understand the exponential function. Yeah, completely. Um, we just um, I think that was Gordon Moore, uh, and it goes further back. I think it was one of the Austrian uh, economists that first said that. Um, uh, interest patterns and common feedback loops are an interest. Um, the 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 implications. Think about this idea. Think about what Elon Musk does. Um, the most, uh, arguably, the most successful entrepreneur in the world today. He looks at te a technology. Looks at ten years. Where will it be on a doubling pattern? Right? Mm -hmm. Picks an accelerating technology, neural links, solar energy, battery power, whatever, and let's build a company to intercept that that curve over ten years. Right. And you hit the curve as it accelerates and boom, you're off to the races. That's that's his MO. He just finds a domain. Where will it be in 10 years? Let's build that company. It's incredibly simple. Now you have to get to that 10 years, non-trivial, yes. uh, et cetera. But but if you can ride that curve, unbelievable things become possible. Right. Now, there's another implication of abundance, which is when you have abundance, things become free. Yeah, that was that's what the next thing I was going to say here is the this explosion of energy. We're just focusing on energy, just energy. Energy is the primary input to all economic activity. So if price and energy goes down, wealth per capita goes up. So yes. it's becoming cheaper. Yeah, there's an explosion in productivity, effectively. So explosion of productivity, and it's in, and it's not just that; it's clean energy, which is the most amazing part of, of this, right? And now you have. Uh, for example, we uh, we do agriculture uh, horizontally today, mm -hmm. and we, it takes about ten thousand square meters to feed one person for a year of agri of farmland. Okay, mm -hmm. the energy coming from one square meter of the sun hitting the earth is enough to that energy is enough to sustain somebody for a year. So the gap in inefficiency of needing ten thousand square meters to one square meter is as huge. So we've got a long, long way to go to tap into and optimize for this, right? Wow. We're just literally just at the beginnings of this. What does that do to markets? I mean, does the does GDP, global GDP just explode as a result of this? Uh, no, it crashes um, because when you drop the cost, um, then you essentially take out the economy and you take out capitalism in its current form. Um, uh, Jeremy Rifkin wrote about this in the Zero Marginal Cost Society. Right? Mm -hmm. He said, uh, uh, capitalism is essentially eating itself because we're getting more and more efficient delivering the same goods for lower and lower price. Eventually, that cost goes to near zero. This is actually the basis for the economic thesis for what we call exponential organizations or EXOs. Right. So think about this idea. If you're... Um, Hyatt, uh, if you're Airbnb, the marginal cost of adding a new room to your inventories is absolutely near zero, mm -hmm. right? If you're Hyatt, you have to build a hotel. Yes. Same with Waze, same with Uber. Mm -hmm. The adding of a car is near zero, right? So you ha now have the opportunity to build a business with almost zero marginal cost of supply. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the denominator in your valuation. You take out the denominator, your market cap explodes, which is why the valuations are so crazy. 
Yeah. And so just that changes the game completely because now we have incredible amounts of latent abundance that we can tap into. In, uh, Airbnb is tapping to an abundance of extra bedrooms lying around. And because they can information enable it, lots of things become possible. Right. So, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but isn't there a pattern historically where as we liberate more energy, we actually develop new uses for it? So what, what does this yeah, say? Yeah, we consume that? a ton more. Absolutely. We become greedy. We start using a ton more, but um, we have 10,000 times more sunlight hitting the earth than we when, than we use today. Wow. So we have a long way to go before we uh, we use up. If we doubled it, nobody would even notice. Right. And, and the implications on conflict, I think you said there's just going to be less to fight over. So uh, Yeah. So, so think about this. If you have free energy, then desalinization becomes free. Mm. Right. Most right. of the big conflicts in the world today are either over energy or water. Right. So if you can desalinate for free because the energy is free and yeah. you have an abundant energy, what are you fighting over? Right. If you yeah. have free energy and free water, then growing food becomes near free. And Jeff Booth made the point, too, that cheap energy allows us to filter carbon from the air very efficiently. Like the technology exactly. already exists, but energy is it's an energy intensive process. So right now, yeah, extracting carbon is, is a very, very uh, laborious and energy intensive. And if we have abundant energy, we can do that. Note, for example, this is one of my arguments for Bitcoin. People talk about the energy costs. Most of the marginal uh, mining costs are now done by renewable energy. Yeah. This is just cheaper. Right. And that, that that has no emissions, et cetera, et cetera. So if we have abundant energy, it doesn't matter what you do with Bitcoin. Right. Right. Wow. It's so it's hard. As you said, it's been like the alpha and the omega of Darwinian existence. I, I, I swear to God, it took five or six years for just that to penetrate my head fully. <laughs> because you hear it and you can't quite process it. You hear it again and you're like, um, how is that possible? Then you hear it again, you hear it again, you hear it again. Then you start seeing examples of it and you're like, yeah, but really, really, it's not really that possible. And meanwhile, the whole world is going, this never is not possible, et cetera. Right. Uh, I'll give you two examples in the energy space. Uh, Chile today is generating so much solar energy. Um, they're giving it to their neighboring countries for free because they can't use it. Hmm. That's like fascinating to me. Wow. Um and my favorite example of this kind of weird perturbation that you see is, is the coal museum in Kentucky uses solar panels. <laughs> and and, and how, how do you look in the mirror on that one, right? And it turns out when we have these massive transitions that you have these weird nonsensical things that happen that don't make sense, it's actually an indicator of a broader transformation at play. Wow. It's overwhelmingly fascinating almost. Um, okay, so given... I, okay, before we, before I ask you that, what's the time horizon? I know timing, when people ask me this about markets and Bitcoin, I always say, I don't even want to answer it because timing is so difficult. But do you have a time horizon in mind for this transformation? Well, we have, I'll give you the, the energy one. Mm -hmm. Okay, we are literally seven years away from being able to, not that we will, but being able to generate all the world's energy needs with solar. Wow. Um, and I'll give you another way to look at it. If you um, wanted to generate the world's energy with solar panels, you need about 1.4% of the Sahara Desert covered in solar panels. And that will that will power the entire world on today's technology. Wow. So you don't need a lot of area. Hmm. Right. So that's another right. And so you you add up the you add up the stack of say energy being abundant 
vertical farming becoming prevalent and economically viable, um, uh, um, information-based models becoming viable, healthcare becoming totally transformed because we have infinite knowledge of what's happening in our bodies and we can see things much more quickly than we ever could before. It, it points to a world of uh, the best framing is abundance. Right? Right. Not that it's like a utopia. Right. Um, it's just that we have we can do anything at almost zero cost. Well, it's yeah. I, I need more time for that to permeate my brain. I think that is true. Let, let me let me give you a little couple more uh, one more example of how to think about this. Um, there's a there's a uh, an electric car called the Vega. Okay, uh, looks like a Lamborghini, beautiful looking thing, nine hundred horsepower. It's the third fastest electric car being made uh, of ever made. In fact, okay. Mm -hmm. It turns out this is being designed and engineered and built in Sri Lanka, mm -hmm. uh, that hotbed of automotive innovation, right? Why? Because the cost and access to information is is near free, mm -hmm. um, and they can three D print many of the body parts, and they can look up the internet on how to uh, get the brushless motors connected up, the engine and battery technology, etc. Uh, and it means that anybody has access to that kind of breakthrough innovation anywhere in the world. So there's this democratization going on mm. because the cost of advance. There's a second thing that's really powerful and important here. In the history of humanity, advanced technologies always cost a lot. Mm -hmm. And only a, a government lab or a big corporate lab can afford to do R&D, launch new products and services, et cetera. Today, for the first time in human history, advanced technologies are very cheap. Mm -hmm. Solar energy is cheap, sensors are cheap, the blockchain is open source and free. Um, AI is open source and mostly free. Mm -hmm. So it means that we have the ability to do, uh, uh, anybody in the world has access to breakthrough innovation. Right. And that's never been true in human history. Yes. So now we see this explosion of breakthrough because we can, uh, and because they will, and because people can now solve problems in really ridiculous ways that you'd never even think about. Um, there's a fishing village in Vietnam where once a month a big ship comes to deliver diesel fuel to power their fishing boats. Right? Uh, at some point, the ship stops coming. These fishermen have no fuel for their boats. So they literally buy a solar panel, put it on the canopy of the boat. They look up on the internet how to connect it to the propeller, and they invent a solar-powered boat. Right. So wow. here you have cutting-edge innovation using the most advanced technologies happening at the edge of the world. Wow. Right, you see, think you kind of when you hit example after example after example of that, pretty much anything is possible. So now we're going to see this explosion of innovation, unlike anything we've ever seen before, and I call it twenty Gutenberg moments. In in the in the fifteenth century, the printing press appeared mm -hmm. and completely changed the world. Yes, yeah, right. And we call that a Gutenberg moment because of the incredible transformation it instigated in society. Well, ChatGPT changed the world completely. Solar energy changed the world completely. Blockchain, Bitcoin changed the world completely. We have 20 of those, right? right. We can, it took us 100 years to fully absorb the printing press. So how are you going to deal with 20? So this is, this is the societal and structural things that I worry about, is how does society absorb this of this? Because the, the thing, this is what I found out at Yahoo that bothered me to no end, which is when you try anything disruptive in a legacy environment, the immune system attacks you. Mm -hmm. Because yes. all our organizations are built to resist change right. and withstand risk. And now we have all, that is the high order bit. Yes.
No, if, that, we can't, if we can't, we have bankers fighting Bitcoin, we have taxis fighting Uber. If we can't solve that cultural resistance to disruptive new ideas, it doesn't matter what the breakthroughs are, we can't Im- implement them. I want to ask you about that because it seems like you're absolutely correct. Legacy industry is always resistant to the new idea, right? The yeah. candle maker hates the light bulb industry, whatever it is. Right. But it seems like economics sort of wins out over time. Like people just use the best tool for the job eventually. So it it does. It just takes way, way, way too long. So what can we do? You look at the oil industry slowing down the transition to solar. Mm -hmm. Like in the eighties and nineties, they would just buy all the solar. There were five or 10 solar energy companies appearing a year. So they would just buy them and shut them down. Mm -hmm. Right. And to slow this down. Now there's 5,000 appearing because the cost is so low. You can't Mm -hmm. shut down 5,000. Now it's taking off. Right. So there's an inexorable transition. Um, uh, And what happens is big companies and big industries achieve regulatory capture and then change the laws. Right. Right. And that, that slows it down even further. The, yeah, and regulatory. That's it's an interesting area where Bitcoin comes into play too. That it sort of makes regulatory capture less relevant over time. Yes. Um, what? Okay. The cultural resistance thing. The, the the image that came to mind was, and I read about this. I think in Human Action by Mises. You know, the the Italian shoemaker resisted the factory when it first came to town. Like it, they yeah. protested it, they demonized it, they attacked it, all of these things. It seems is this part of human nature that we are just scared or of change or resistant to change? And if so, what can we do about that? It's absolutely part of human nature. And the the deep answer to this uh, um, comes was highlighted most uh, from Peter and Stephen Cutler's book Abundance. Right? Mm-hmm. They hi- highlighted the fact that we all have in the back of our brains this little organ called an amygdala. <laughs> it's constantly scanning for bad news, yeah. right? And it's a survival mechanism. If you hear a noise in the bushes 10,000 years ago, you run mm-hmm. because bad news can kill you. Good news doesn't kill you. Mm-hmm. So if I miss some good news, I might miss some fruit that I could eat. Mm-hmm. If I missed a piece of bad news, I could die. Right. We're actually 10 times more likely to pay attention to bad news than good news because of the survival nature of this. Again, the survival aspect, right? Mm-hmm. Um this is why Fox News does well. If you watch Fox News, you're going to die this week, right? <laughs> By some iterant <laughs> Mexican or something. If you're really lucky, you last till next week, but then you're going to die next week, right? Mm-hmm. Peter is fond of calling CNN the crisis news network because when you can track every bank robbery in high definition, real time, streamed to 20 devices, you think the world is going to hell. And then you vote based on it. Right. And then you end up with Trump or Brexit, which are totally about the politics of fear. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to motivate fear and trigger fear. So I think one of the most incredible opportunities and difficulties we have as a human species is to overcome the amygdala, because we don't really have survival risk for the most part today. And yet we get completely captured by by it, Hmm. by the news cycle. If you ask anybody today, the world is in a hell of a messy place, right? And Peter would have, I'm sure, covered the fact that we're in a better place than we've ever had in the history of the world. Right. You look at the data. And so we have to overcome that uh, biological, uh, fundamental archetype in in the deepest part of our limbic reptilian brain to navigate this. But there are power structures and individuals preying on that 
that they're hijacking that amygdala all the time. For Absolutely. Is that's what politicians all politicians, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just them, it's it's uh it's religions. Right. Right? It's the other. You create a division. Yeah. We're the chosen people. Muhammad is the last prophet. Right. right? Christ is the son of God, and there's no other son of God, right. etc. And so we create boundaries to be able to make sense of the world and capture tribal instincts and gather people under our banner. Right. And again, that's a survival instinct, scarcity minded, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. That's interesting. So we are we then the other quote is coming to mind. The problem with human beings is we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. EO Wilson, yeah, absolutely. Is absolutely and, and as leaders for that. We have to reconcile those three levels. And if we don't, as the technologies become more powerful, we have existential threat. So I've been we've been focusing on. So it turns out, so we've looked at this quite a bit. And seven years of running Singularity, we used to have a ton of discussions around this, right? Um, and it turns out as individuals, we're pretty good at navigating this. Like yeah. you can take uh the old models for transforming your brain were yoga, martial arts, meditation. Then we had uh, psychotherapy and cognitive behavioral therapy and and so on. Now we have psychedelics that give you an instant leapfrog to uh, what is divine consciousness. And you get to experience that and you get a sense of the world and that solves for PTSD and a bunch of other things. So we have new techniques that allow us to navigate as individuals and we're pretty good at it. And we have those Tony Robbins, Landmark Education, et cetera. We, we've got those techniques. Uh, what I'm focused on is the group level, which is where I find is the real issue. Because our companies have their immune system, our institutions have their immune system. Like God help you if you try and update academia. Right. right? right. In religion, they'll kill you if you don't adhere to the to the orthodoxy of the religion. Right. So there's existential threat. Yeah. Um, uh, so there's a uh, our institutions and our organizations are terrible at this. So the one of the things we've been focused on ever since I published the book a few years ago was how do you solve this immune system problem. Right. And we actually we actually have cracked it. Um, we've created a a ten week engagement that we run inside a legacy big company, and we found a way of hacking culture at scale. Wow! And so we we piloted it with uh, Procter and Gamble. We've done it like sixty times with big companies around the world, and uh, we have a nonprofit that does the same thing in the public sector because mm -hmm. now you have to change policy and regulatory much harder, but much more important. And so we adapted the process. It takes. 16 weeks, but it works. And we've done it a bunch of times, most notably with the mayor of Miami. So a lot of the buzz around Miami is we we changed the public sector relationship about how they thought about the city. Wow. Is, okay. I wanted to ask you about psychedelics next, but now I'm wondering, is psychedelics part of that change program? No, no. Psychedelics help you shortcut it. Yeah. Uh, it, it accelerates that, that, that transformation, right? Yeah. Um, it gives you this experience of the divine consciousness, and then you kind of, it's there, you can't deny it afterwards. Mm -hmm. And now the rest of your world is framed by, oh, I know that this is there. Right. right? So that it helps. Um, uh, and it gives you an insight that there's something bigger than yourself. That's that's an experiential insight. It can't be denied afterwards. Right. Um, the What we're looking at is cultural transformation. In, in any big company, if you try and do something disruptive, the default answer is no. Yes. Right, and what we're able to do is switch that default answer to yes. Is there so what Tony, what Tony Robbins does with an individual where they can do a state change of, of the subconscious, 
with yeah. NLP. We're able to do that with an organization. Oh, wow. Okay. Institution. We've, we found a way of doing that. Now, so we've open sourced these techniques because we have to, we have to do this around the world, wherever we have disruptive uh, innovation or disruptive change. So for example, we see the introduction of um, uh, flying taxis or flying cars, right? Huge immune system problem there. Like regulatory air traffic control space. Oh my God, the thing is dangerous. Da, 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 da. So you have to overcome all of that cultural legacy thinking to that. Or autonomous cars is my favorite example. The my my I, this example of the you, do you know the trolley car problem? I am familiar the, with this. Where the where okay, you have an autonomous car. It has to choose between hitting a child or hitting a grandmother. Right. How do you program in the ethical discussion? Right. And I go bananas on that question. I hate it. I, I start screaming at people. And the reason is, when was the last time you had to make that decision in a car? Right? When was the last time anybody you knew had to make that decision in a car? Right? right? No. Um, and autonomous cars will see that problem way ahead of a human being and solve for it way beforehand. So for fear of this one in a gajillion outcome, we're stopping the entire field. Right. And saying, just ban autonomous cars until we figure this out. Huh. Again, going back to the fear factor. Yes. Is there risk associated with getting an organization to be more culturally embracing of change? Because it seems like maybe that inertia is like a protective mechanism for the the size of the company, something like that. This is a great question and a really important one. I remember having, um, there's a conference in Mexico, which is like TED for Mexico called Ciudad de las Ideas. And the founder of a guy called Andres Romer came to one of the, I would do these late night meeting of life sessions at Singularity University. And he came for one of them. And he said, you know, you need that subconscious layer mm -hmm. because if, if your wife and your husband goes out and doesn't come back from a hunt, you have to have the protection uh, of that from, from freaking you out. You need these barriers, right? And that was true when we had existential threat. Mm -hmm. But we don't have existential threat for the most part today. Mm. Right. Um, your chance of dying a violent death is what hundreds of times less than it was a few a few centuries ago. Mm -hmm. So in that model, you really don't need the amygdala. Mm. Uh, we need to figure out models to ride around it. Mm. And and I think that's the primary work of of human beings is not to get trapped into that conversation. And organizations, the same thing. People are scared. I'll give you a business example that's in, that I like to use. Um, Marriott Hotels is worth about $50 billion on the, on the stock market, roughly. Okay, If Marriott had spun off TripAdvisor, Booking.com, and Airbnb, their market cap would be five times higher. Hmm. The reason I use that is that all of those ideas for Airbnb, et cetera, were sitting inside Marriott, and the immune system wouldn't let them out. Hmm. So for fear of cannibalizing the existing $50 billion business, they're leaving $200 billion on the market, on the table. Right? Wow. So, so really, uh, and so uh, big companies are terrible at unlocking disruptive innovation, which is why the entrepreneurs always are the ones to do the disruption. Right. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, okay. To pivot slightly. Uh, I know you mentioned you have a hobby, uh, looking into metaphysics, um, perhaps also, uh, exploring the overlap with psychedelics. Um, what are your metaphysical views? Let's say, I think you mentioned that they are agnostic. 
Um, and how have psychedelics helped shape your your views on metaphysics? Um, metaphysical views. Uh, so there's a deep interconnectedness between all living things is a is a key view. Um, um, at the one extreme, you could call it the Gaia theory. Mm -hmm. uh, other there's other models. Uh, Neoplatonism, as as you talk about, is one of them. Mm -hmm. um, what uh, and the, the fact that we're kind of one all one, all connected. And this is basically the basic mantra of Buddhism or Christianity or any evolved religion is we're all deeply connected. Is that what you, uh, mean when you invoke divine consciousness, that kind of like one consciousness? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Okay. Right? And, and Deepak Chopra talks about this as there's this ocean of consciousness and you're an instantiation of one cup of that ocean. Right. right. Um, uh, you can't see outside your cup, but that, that ocean is definitely there. Mm -hmm. so that's one metaphor around this. And again, we get stuck with metaphors. My favorite comment from Ray Kurzweil around discussing stuff like consciousness was language is a really thin pipe to discuss a topic as rich as this, right? <laughs> but typically very brilliant framing from, from Ray. Um, uh, and I think what happens is we are kind of trundling along in our worlds. And once in a while, you get a glimpse of a higher consciousness, near-death experiences, etc. And what I'm fascinated by psychedelics is it gives you a prescriptive experience of divine consciousness. Right. Um, and what when I got excited by it was we were we had a, um, some uh, neuroscientists come and speak at Singularity University a few years ago, and what they'd been doing was doing fMRI scans, real time mm -hmm. brain scans of people taking psychedelics. Mm -hmm. right? So today with fMRI scans, you can actually track a single neuron firing in your brain in real time. Wow. So we have incredible precision as to what's happening in your brain. In the 60s, when Timothy Leary and all these guys were, Steve Jobs and Wozniak and the Beatles were taking psychedelics, they were just chucking it down. Like they had like very, very, almost no idea what it was doing to them. They're just like high for something. And mm -hmm. hence, therefore, somewhat dangerous in the same way. Mm -hmm. um, now we have infinite understanding that if you take 100 milligrams of mushrooms uh, for this type of thing, it does exactly this to that. It suppresses or enhances that neural circuit. Mm -hmm. So now we have a feedback loop. Right. right. So these guys have done a ton of giving psychedelics at different dosages to people and seeing what it does to their brain at different strengths and whatever. And that now we have a, an amazing feedback loop. We know exactly how much of X will do what will do what with. And now you can manage the, the experience in a very uh, careful way. And the both the medicinal uh, potential around this plus the spiritual potential around this is incredible. Yeah, because you get that that experience of of the divine, uh, and you can't you can't undo it afterwards. It's there inside you. Yes, yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, yeah, early uh, experiences early with psilocybin, and um, the experience just seems to be indescribable. Um, but and it is indelible, as you said. Like once it it kind of leaves its mark on you. Yeah. Um, I think, and they've done studies on this now, right? People with one dose, the right dose, I don't know the exact, it's three or five grams psilocybin, whatever it is, that people consistently reported as being one of the most profound experiences of their life, you know, like yes, as or more profound as the birth of their child, near-death experiences, things like this. I'd way rather do it that way than have a near-death experience. Yeah. <laughs> the, the downside of the near-death experience is... It's much more fun than the near-death experience, but sometimes if it's a bad trip can feel like the near-death experience. Yeah. 
Um, but I found since that actually just in recent years, having come into Neoplatonism, uh, you know, the experience, again, the experience is indescribable, but, but it definitely feels as though the, the common thread amongst a lot of people is that there's some underlying unity, right? There's some deep yeah. continuity between everything. And in your normal consciousness, we're not as aware of that. We're, we're more reductionist, right? We're putting things, we're thinking through language. So we're putting things in these little static buckets, but the, the deeper truth of reality is this, this kind of infinite continuity, fluid, complex thing. And um, it's, pretty incredible to me that finding neoplatonism like described that so well like it, the the core of neoplatonism is the one or the good and this hmm. this metaphysical principle of unity got absorbed into christianity to be what we call god today yep. and um i you know there's a lot of speculation there too people thinking that maybe psychedelics had some influence on some of these great philosophers and oh absolutely um, you know, these practices go back so many thousands of years that you get a lot of insights from them. And uh, I, I, there's Bufo, which is the frog mm -hmm. that exudes DMT, pure DMT out of its back. Mm -hmm. and I, I think if I remember right, the Spanish conquistadors coming throughout the Amazon uh, actually found these natives licking frogs. I'm like, what the hell are you doing licking frogs? Mm -hmm. And so we've been doing this stuff forever. Um, uh, because the Western world can't cope with the the uh, the framing of a divine experience, except as a religious metaphysical experience, with respect to a religious experience, and only accessible through that one thing, we basically ignore it. Right. Uh, and and uh, that's a shame. But I think what's happening now with the the feedback loops and the insights we have are, and all the therapeutic potential of it is unbelievable. So I'm super excited with what happens in the future. It may give us our first vector to breaking through the amygdala issue. Yeah, that's where I was going to go. It's with one it. of the things that I found is after doing a few psychedelics, you're, you don't ever fear death again. Right. Yeah. So that's incredibly liberating. Incredibly. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. And I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today 
to download the state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This three-day event will be held May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach. Uh, this is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, day one's industry day. Days two and three are going to be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, just a really all-around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, many others. And last year, we did a 10 million sats giveaway for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference slash 2023 and use code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Element. Element is a delicious electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. Element contains the ideal electrolyte ratio. It's got 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. Element has no junk. It's got no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS at all. Element is perfectly suited for people that are on a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. And as someone that eats a very heavy meat diet and does a lot of intermittent fasting, I simply love this stuff. So go to drinkelement.com slash breedlove. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash breedlove. And make sure to get a free sample pack with your first purchase. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. What is happening in your estimation with this, like this? I know it's so impossible to talk about, but what is it about consciousness, I guess, coming into contact with these substances? I know it's speculation. Do you think there's it's modifying consciousness or it's it's changing the wave pattern or something like what? How would you begin to attempt to describe the actual experience itself? Well, there's the there's a phenomenological experience of what you what you feel, right? Mm -hmm. Which is this connectedness, and it's not describable in words, mm -hmm. uh, which makes it very hard in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, we've had different flavors of this forever um, in. The whirling dervishes of Turkey mm -hmm. have a prescriptive path to religious experience. If you do these steps and you do these actions, you will have a religious experience. Right. It just takes forever, right? Yes. Uh, I remember talking to a Tibetan uh, priest, um, and he said it used to take 14 lifetimes to reach enlightenment. Um, uh, but, to, but they've been getting better at it. And today, if you work really hard, you can do it in one. Um, which I find like totally amazing. They've been they've been getting better at it and iterating it. Uh, and there's some profound uh, uh, bridges that then can be built from the Eastern world to the Western world. 
Yeah. And I think psychedelics give you that experiential basis of it. When I look at philosophy and metaphysics, uh, I, I go down the Robert Persig path. He wrote Zen in the Art of More Cycle Maintenance. And right? Leela. We love his, his book, Leela. Leela. Yeah. So there's a 50-page section in that. I think in a thousand years, we're going to go, wow, that guy nailed it. Right? Yes. That, that section where he describes dynamic versus static quality, et cetera. And if you look at that, there there's these two aspects of goodness or or God or whatever framing you want. And we have, we're really good at, at the one. We can describe a Ferrari in the, in the beauty of the form and function or the beauty of the engineering. But the dynamic aspect, which is the unknowable, the, the which transcends language, et cetera, is very hard to deal with. Um, yeah. Now we have access to that um, via uh, very specific dosages of psychedelics. And I think it becomes a, a, a necessary part of the human experience to uh, feel that, go see it, because then you don't worry about just that will take out all the wars in the world, right? Uh, and people won't be fighting as much, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Yeah. So to um, transcend the amygdala. Is this part? Do you think psychedelics would be instrumental to some type of cultural huge that might huge. get us to stop resisting disruptive technological change? It, it gives you a biological pathway to routing around the amygdala mm. and quelling its impact on you. Um, and so I think there's a huge uh, um, opportunity there to do that because we we so we live in fear um, for for almost every aspect of our lives, fear of death, uh, fear of running out of money, et cetera, et cetera. We we live in this that that fishbowl is fear, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and you can now come out of that fishbowl and go, wow, there's this thing called love. Yes, uh, and. And the we now have the tools to do it that are that are advanced and, and fast and much much better than we used to have before. So a combination of of the some of the old work that we did plus some of the new um, experiences and discoveries discoveries we're making allow us to then transcend lots and lots of things: pain of suffering, sickness, illness, disease, emotional pain, and trauma, past life trauma, whatever you want to call it now can be transcended into a new modality. Wow. And, and it's super exciting because it's never been uh, possible before at, at a systemic level. Right. And we're seeing them being used kind of at the periphery of healthcare, like terminally ill patients using psilocybin to kind of cope with existential dread. Do yep. you see those becoming more integrated into the health system? I think absolutely uh, it does. Um, so I'll give you an example. In, in I grew up in India. Okay? Mm-hmm. And in India, they do what's called a spiritual bypass. You have all your crowd of your family and all the issues of being a family and, and the legacy um, epigenetic issues. Like, for example, they, they now we now know very clearly that the Holocaust uh, took takes about four generations to iron deep trauma out of a family. Wow. Yeah, it takes literally four generations. So we now have the first generation of Jewish people that are emerging away from, uh, without the 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 layer of the Holocaust sitting behind their subconscious. Right. It takes like four generations to do that. So India, with all the trauma it's been through over thousands of years, there's no mechanism to solve for that. And what they do is they jump right past that emotional layer to the spiritual layer, and they become really spiritual, um, uh, Vedic and enlightenment, and they meditate and all the rest of it. But you're, you ha- you can't ignore that emotional relational. You have to solve for that. Right. And so it sneaks out. It, it comes out in 
in um, um, uh, tribal issues and uh, gender violence and uh, all sorts of other ways. And now I think I think the whole of India should take psychedelics and just cleanse it all out in one shot. Right? <laughs> and that's now that's now possible. That was just never possible before. And the, I'll give you the metaphor that 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 I found the best. Did you ever hear of um, um, Lawrence Bloom? I don't think uh, so. Lawrence was, I think, the first chairman of the World Economic Forum, passed away a couple of years ago. And he was deep in the history of money since the 60s mm-hmm. and the new models of money, et cetera. And the metaphor he gave me that, that has always stuck in my mind was that if you look at humanity as a spaceship, mm-hmm. uh, fossil fuels and capitalism is that booster rocket that gets, that has enough raw power to get you out of low Earth, uh, out of the gravity well. Yeah. Right? You get to a certain altitude and and you you now have to jettison that big heavy rocket and booster engine and take on a much lighter craft that takes you to the next level up. If you don't jettison quickly enough, it pulls you back down. Right. Right. And it's a beautiful metaphor because it doesn't make capitalism or fossil fuels wrong. Like it's how we couldn't have gotten here if it wasn't for that. Right. But now you need a totally different format for how you get to the next level. Right. Uh, and we have to now figure that out. Right. Uh, and that was one of the more elegant metaphors I think I've ever heard about where we are as a species. That's fascinating. Extractive capitalism, for example, is just you know a nightmare. Yeah, I, the word capitalism, another one that's so loaded with different associations and connotations. Um, you know, approaching it from just the purely economic sense, the private ownership of the means of production, private ownership of capital. I yeah. think that's pretty important. I don't think you can get around that. Like we need private ownership to make division of labor work and all that. But to the extent all of these technological advancements explode productivity, like it may just be less relevant. So therefore we'd have different socioeconomic organizational models. And I don't know what we call that. Actually, the best framing I've seen about that is very provocative. It's by a guy called Harry Clore, who was a writer for Star Trek. Mm -hmm. He calls it technological socialism. Hmm. So socialism fails because centralized governments are inefficient and invariably lead to corruption. Mm-hmm. And and the speed of allocating resources is too goddamn slow in a big mm-hmm. bureaucracy. And so mm-hmm. people have a hell of a tough time with it. But if you think about Uber, mm-hmm. uh, Uber is actually a socialist app. It's the sharing of assets amongst a large group of people. Mm-hmm. When an algorithm is doing that matching, it allows us to be hyper-efficient. You need very little regulatory oversight because of the feedback loop and reputation systems built in. Uh, and you can you can deliver the sharing of assets in a very hyper efficient, effective way without needing uh, greed to be driving in the same way, right? right? Uh, and and I love that framing just because it gives us the the promise of of it without the messiness of it. Yes. Um, and so I think it's it, there's a book to be written in that. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you explore? Uh, the benefits of what technology can deliver to us. Uh, Pierre, Ray Kurzweil puts it best. He says, uh, technology is a major driver of progress in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may actually be the only driver of progress in the world. I think so. And yeah. if we don't use technology to progress ourselves, we often end up in war, Yeah, which is a hugely inefficient way of progressing humanity. Absolutely. Self-destructive. Yeah. I, so I hear you on the, the the technological socialism, but again, I guess we're kind of trapped in language on this. From coming from the purely libertarian standpoint that considers socialism the an institutionalized policy of aggression against private property or private ownership, that like Uber 
depends on capitalism still, right? You yeah. still private ownership, bank accounts, you know, price, yeah. all of these things. So I don't, I don't know, like we, we've been in this dichotomous thing, capitalism, socialism, but I think we need like, right. I think it's the wrong, it's the wrong vector, right? Um, it's the, the axis is mislabeled yeah. um, because Uber, you still have private ownership. Yes. Uh, people self-select. It right. creates unbelievable liquidity for the labor force. Yes. Right. And so there's all these benefits of it, but it's giving you the promise of socialism. So hence you, we call it technological socialism. As yeah, opposed to you mean more efficient use of assets by socialism. Boom. Right. But yeah. that, again, the, it's like, well, what, are we using your version of socialism or mine? Well, people, people have like, we, he framed it deliberately because people have this massive allergic reaction to socialism, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, socialism is so. bad, yeah. right? And and so it's really useful to to nuance that with an adjective and then talk through why the parts of socialism that are bad are the corruption and the inefficiency. Yeah. If you can solve for that, then you know. And we do this all the time, by the way. But you go and eat at a restaurant and you're using the same fork that somebody ate with an hour ago. Right. And we don't think that's socialism, right? Right. but you're still sharing assets. It's just a it, the model works very well in that vector for how to think about it. Yeah, again, well, man, it's so it's when you it's when the state takes control of all of the assets and decides we're going to allocate it. It invariably fails because of corruption and, and again inefficiency. And that, uh, the private sector running socialism works incredibly well. Yeah, yeah. And that's yeah, that's why I always try to get it under the rubric of statism because statism seems to be the actual problem. If you could somehow remove that element. That is the, now, having said that, if you're a libertarian, there's a dirty little secret about the state. Okay. Uh, and I got this from Vinay Gupta, uh, who, if you've not interviewed, you really should. Um, Vinay was the head of community for Ethereum when it launched. Um, and, he's, uh, and he made a really interesting point because I tend towards libertarianism. Right. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, he said, uh, you know, all capitalism um, survives because of limited liability laws. Uh, I, I, so I can form a company, yeah, an LLC. That's a limited liability. I can. I, I don't. I'm not liable past the money that's gone into it. Right. No matter what I do to society because of it. Right. I'm only liable. That's a state protecting the investor. Yes. That's the state giving you permission to go do rather crazy things. Right. The aggregate effect will be better than if they didn't. But if you wanted to be truly libertarian, this is uh, Vinate speaking, yeah. get rid of LLCs and see how fast capitalism collapses. Now you're like, wow, it's really, really interesting and I, worth worth a conversation. I agree, actually. That, that you're basically saying reinstating personal liability, right? Yeah. Yeah, you, you would kill entrepreneurship because because people won't want to take risks because the liability, if you do something crazy, for example, um, I'm playing with some toxin and it gets out into the world and a thousand people die, my liability is infinite. Am I going to play with that toxin? Absolutely not. But if I have an LLC, the state is shielding my, uh, limiting my downside. Yeah. And it gives me freedom to try things out uh, in an interesting way. Yeah, it makes sense. And... I guess another wrinkle to it that I've been wrestling with is in this world of unseizable capital, like, right, with if Bitcoin is truly this thing that you put that comes to dominate the world, let's say, 
you can already custody it in ways that it cannot be seized. Yeah. So therefore you can't litigate against someone to get it. So like that sort of make that it neuters. It's inevitable to a large extent. So yeah. I'm like, for, what for, me, for me, the penny dropped with Bitcoin. We did a two hour webinar with Jeff Booth uh, a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and it was an hour on why fiat currencies will fail and an hour, a second hour on why Bitcoin can't not succeed. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know pretty well Brock Pierce and Austin Hill and Adam Back and some of these folks that were foundational in building some of this stuff out. And the the thing that blew my mind was a legal framing that said, if I'm sending you Bitcoin, I'm sending you an alphanumeric string of text and numbers. Yeah. Right? Well, that's First Amendment. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. and therefore you will you will never be able to stop Bitcoin in the US. Um uh, the the conniptions you'd have to go through. So the government tries to slow down the onboard and off on ramps and off ramps, mm-hmm. and tax it as every transaction in really stupid ways to slow it down like hell. Um, but they can't stop it. Right. So there's this inevitability to it over time. Yeah. Um. And and so it it's something that that you have to look at as super exciting. Yeah. It's just the idea of fixed supply money that benefits users like and it because it is an idea as you said it's just information it's like how do you stop there's that old saying the most unstoppable thing in the world is an idea whose time has come yeah and that's right hard so it's almost like how would you turn off english right like how, yeah that's right you can't, you can't undo it. so i've got a great little story to tell you i'm i'm sitting in the i'm running one of our singularity sessions and one of our speakers is a guy called ralph merkel Mm-hmm. Uh, who's a who's one of the world's top experts in nanotechnology? Yeah. So he's talking through his stuff, et cetera, et cetera. And somebody goes, um, "Excuse me, but are you Ralph Merkel from uh, Merkel Hash Trees?" Mm-hmm. And he's like, "Yeah, that, that was another life, et cetera, et cetera." And this penny drops on the room, going, "Are we freaking kidding?" This we we always knew him as the nanotech guru. Yeah. But twenty years ago, he laid down all the single path encryption models that the entire crypto world is based on. Yes. <laughs> You're like, how could one person have done like that many things? Um, and uh, and once you have that, you can't undo it. And once you have Bitcoin, you can't undo it. Yeah. And then it's just a question of how quickly, how long will it take for us to navigate to that model? And it's uh, it's again, I'm I'm in the world that sees us in as pretty inevitable. Yeah, back to where we kind of started in this shift in age, right? From agricultural, industrial, digital. Uh, I'm a, I've become more of a believer that actually the technological landscape influences our language and metaphors. Like we already see this when you see people say, "Oh, that's a feature, not a bug." You know, things like yeah. that. You said that 25 years ago. No one knows what you're talking about. Like it wouldn't make right. any sense. So it's. I think we're going to have to form some new language and new metaphors to deal with all of this new technology. And that's probably what we're struggling with now. Like we're saying capitalism, socialism, like they don't quite work. So I, it's very difficult to, to conceptualize. There, there's a number of framings that we struggle with usually. Like, for example, when I look at um, Trump or Brexit, I don't see it as left versus right. Mm-hmm. I see it as urban versus rural. Mm-hmm. Right? Brexit was completely London versus the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the jealousy of the economic activity in London 
and them getting to dictate policy in a huge way. And you have the same tension between Paris and the rest of France or Buenos Aires and the rest of Argentina. Mm. Uh, it's that's the tension, the nation state versus the city state. Right, right. So I'm a I'm a believer that over this century we de-emphasized nation states pretty uh, dramatically, and and you emphasized city states. And the future will be city states. It's just a much better uh, form of human behavior and collective human agency. I agree with that strongly. I've actually written about that. Um, there's a book, The Sovereign Individual, that's uh, yeah. inspired a lot of my thinking on that. But okay, we're dancing around this a little bit, but I, I have to ask you. What are your thoughts on the nature of money itself? Like what obviously the namesake of the show. So I guess I could just ask you, what is um, again, we go to that same um challenge of of describing the old versus new, right? Whether it's scarcity or abundance, whether it's uh, Mad Max or Star Trek, however you want to frame it. And I think of money in that realm. Um for me, the 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 inflection point came when we floated off the gold standard mm -hmm. uh, in the early 70s. And um, we tried to grow the global economy with debt, um, which uh, works until you uh, until you get hit by the issue that technology is deflationary. Mm -hmm. And the TV that you paid a thousand bucks for is going to be worth 500 uh, in a year, or, or you double the features. Um, and now a debt-based system doesn't work. Um, because you can't rely on in inflation to pay back that loan as less than when you board it. Now the whole system collapses. So we're facing, I think, a systemic collapse in fiat currencies as a result. Okay. The only tool left to central banks is printing more money, right. um, which we've seen rampantly. And who the hell needs 200 fiat currencies in the world? right? Um, and so you have something like Bitcoin coming along, which I find exciting uh, not really for the digital aspect of it, but more because it's a programmable mm -hmm. uh, and and b decentralized. Mm -hmm. That I think is the so for me when when uh, I think it was Brock Pierce who first described the Byzantine generals problem to me. Mm -hmm. uh, that's when the penny dropped for me. Mm -hmm. I went, wow, you can have authentication on a decentralized model, never been done before, and now we have it, and that just changes everything. Yeah. And and that. That sends you down a rabbit hole and of excitement because everything. And I came at this from a, an identity um, angle because I was participating in Silicon Valley in what are called the uh, a series of conferences called the Internet Identity Workshops, mm -hmm. and they were worrying about identity and how do you take your Google ID and use it over here or uh, Facebook ID and everybody's trying to be the dominant ID model, but you always had a, a trusted third party to manage your identity for you. And therefore, that was that was uh, compromisable, mm -hmm. and so you couldn't have truly secure identity. And we were stuck with this problem that if the third party got hacked, your identity was screwed, mm -hmm. and and nobody could figure out how to get around that problem. And we sat with that for like three, four, five years, and then boom, Bitcoin shows up, mm -hmm. and you're like, whoa, this solves for that. That's <laughs> incredible. And and it's again, as you mentioned it before, I think it was really elegant. Once you have it, you can't unlearn it. Right there and now you just go wow now look at the ripple effects of applying this to land titles and intellectual property and all sorts of things it's super exciting what what is likely to come from this but it's it's a sea change that nobody in our lifetime has ever understood or experienced you really need psychedelics to get your head around it almost <laughs> um uh, uh and there's this unbelievable immune system response from the legacy going no we should protect the existing system 
And it, this is, again, it goes back to that Star Trek versus Mad Max challenge or scarcity to abundance challenge. I think of Bitcoin as the money of abundance. Mm. Yeah, no, it's well said. Um, you you'd said something to me offline about this relationship you perceived between money and energy. Yeah. I think you also said you perceived the relationship between energy and love. And so, again, I know we're trapped in language. We're talking about very primal terms here, but I'd love to just kind of parse that with you a bit. That one is, I find, actually pretty easy. So my degree was in theoretical physics. Right? Okay. And so you're all constantly thinking about transferring energy into work, mm -hmm. uh, potential energy into kinetic energy. Uh, and you're honestly having this uh, thing. Uh, very controversially, I don't believe in the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, oh, really? Which is very controversial. Um, uh, you know, it's fascinating to me. I've, I've done a deep dive into the history of physics and, and so on. And every time we thought we had a constant, yeah, um, the speed of light we thought was constant. Um, right. uh, um, the Avogadro number, the molar value, like there's a bunch of these constants in physics. Yeah. We go, yeah, that's the number, and it's just that's the number. It's never going to change. Yeah. Every time you drill into it, it turns out it's variable. Right. Like the speed of light varies. It turns out. Right. right. Like, vacuum, like oh. right. and so yeah. so when you say something like uh, as black and white as the conservation of energy, or uh, you're like, wait, every other constant breaks. Why should this one be unique? Mm -hmm. And I, I, I describe life as. Uh, as localized anti-entropic forces. Mm -hmm. Yes. Like life breaks entropy because right. we're organizing into more and more sophisticated forms that violates right. the second law of thermodynamics. So life violates the second law. Yes. Life shouldn't exist uh, for if you if you if you truly believe in the full flow. Now you have localized anti-entropy when we get to the broader levels, what do we do? So I, I'll give you an example of this. I was talking to one of the world's top quantum computing experts. Right? And we had this presentation on quantum computing. Somebody's hand goes up and they go, where is all this computation coming from? And this guy goes, you're not going to like what I'm going to say. But if you want to know, I'll tell you. I'm like, yeah, of course, tell us. He goes, well, um, uh, the best assessment we have as quantum physicists looking at quantum computing is that we're doing the processing and computation in parallel universes and bringing the answer back. <laughs> and you're like, come on, right? You're like, and I, mean, I went around and asked a few of them, and it turns out that is the prevailing view. Yeah, yeah. that we're doing the the pro now. Right there, you you're done. Like you can't you can't conceive of you can't That's have a Star Trek for sure. You, you can't have a conversation about this. Yeah, what do you mean by multiple you, uh, parallel universes? What what the hell is that? So. Yeah. We have an enormous challenge when you get to the edges of these fields to make any sense of it because it's so it's so surreal, right? Yeah. I'll give you another example. Um, we uh, at Brickhouse, which was the Yahoo incubator I was running, we used to have uh, um, high level people come and speak. We had the head of physics from Stanford come and speak, and she was an expert on dark matter. And during the Q and A, I said, "What's the most surprising experiment result that you are seeing?" Right. So it turns out what they've been doing is gathering photons that are really, really close to the Big Bang and measuring, and, and they're, measuring, they're gathering photons that are coming at right angles, uh -huh. and then finding the source and measuring the angle between the sources. Uh -huh. And the question they've been asking is, is space-time, we think space-time is curved, 
Yeah. Are we on the inside of that expanding balloon or on the outside of that expanding balloon? So if you gather really old photons and calculate the angle that they start off at, you'll get either over 180 degrees indicating we're on the outside or uh, less than 180 degrees indicating we're on the inside. So mm -hmm. which is it, right? And so they did these, these experiments. This was in 2005, okay? Um, and I'm like, okay, that's an interesting experiment. And she goes, the result is super annoying. It turns out that the angle is exactly 180 degrees, implying <laughs> that space-time is flat and infinite. Right, and you're like, wait, what? And and infinity is a nightmare when you're dealing with physics equations. You can't get, you can't get rid of it. Right, it's just you're stuck with it. It's yeah. this yeah. flat and infinite. In 2016, with the Hubble telescope, they reran these experiments at a hundred times more precision because now we have much better sensors, much better data, et cetera, et cetera. And the answer is exactly the same. Wow. So now you. Now you have no language or metaphor to even talk about space-time, right? So at that point, you just go, well, okay, just now you go to psychedelics right away uh, <laughs> to get, get your head around that. So I'm I'm fascinated by the edges of theoretical physics where uh, atoms come into being and then disappear, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And the best um, model we've seen around how this maps to the real world is chaos theory and fractals. Mm -hmm. Right, everything in the un everything in nature that we see is fractal. Yeah, a tree growing, etc. Blood veins, capillary models, so um, similar at multiple scales, but never exactly the same. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so you have uh, the spiraling nature, which again goes back to the DNA design, is a spiral. Yeah, uh, and you're you're constantly cycling through. Which then you start looking into. Okay, that may imply reincarnation. It may imply other things. All sorts of possibilities get get discussed this is why when we do these metaphysics sessions alcohol is absolutely mandatory right <laughs> or or equivalent oh, equivalent yeah. um, uh, substance um so the the and again we run into the language problem around a lot of this and when we're dealing with this massive systemic shift we're crossing over this old uh, rubicon to this new and we don't have the language. We don't have the modeling or the language or any of that to deal with this new world. Yeah. And so it's a. That's why I think of it as the biggest transformation in in history. Uh, we're literally uh, uh, breaking the model by which evolution came to this point and going to the next level. Yeah. It's mind bending on so many levels. I've never heard anyone say, though, that they didn't buy into the second law of thermodynamics. So does that mean, because that is the one that governs the arrow of time, right? Yes, which we know is is a kind of flexible at the quantum level anyway. Right. So, right? Is so illusion then? I think time of, of time is a dimension or a vector. Hmm. It's like a variable. Uh, and so you can deal with it uh, in that model. Do you think it's intrinsic to external or just something we're generating through experience or? Uh, now we get into the language problem. I think it's something we're generating through experience. We, we, we experience this three-dimensional time and space world um, through the passage of time. It, it anchors us to the progression. Right. But you can, every, every time you have a dream, um, you're having a totally different reality, right? Different experience. Uh, and that experience in your dream is can be just as real, 
Right. And so now, which is real and which isn't? Yeah, you get straight into like consciousness. It's very confusing area, clearly. Yes. Uh, I, I, on the point of life being anti-entropic, I completely agree. I've written about it the same way. I love G.K. Chesterton's quote on this, that a dead thing can go with the stream. Only a living thing can swim against it. And That's a great way of putting it. It's the only yes. thing that fights entropy. And yeah. That's almost like what we're doing, right? Like innovation, evolution, everything is like swimming against the stream. To, to bring it back to the contemporary topic, this is where I find the discussion about, about AI and robotics really fascinating. Mm. So one of our faculty members was a NASA astronaut, and he was trying to build robots. Uh, and so he's trying to build a robot, a humanoid type robot. And his wife's looking at him going, you know, he's trying to figure out what does it mean to have a robot? How do you put give it a brain? What does it mean to have a brain in a robot? Mm -hmm. And his wife is a neuroscientist. And she looks at him and goes, you're an idiot, you know? Um, let me take you outside. So she goes outside in the garden, out of pulls him out of the basement where he's hacking robots, et cetera, and says, look out in the woods and the grass and the trees. Tell me what has a brain and what doesn't have a brain. And it turns out anything that moves has a brain. Hmm. A tree doesn't, it may have a nervous system, but it doesn't have a brain in that sense. A squirrel has a brain, et cetera. Right? Yeah. Uh, in fact, he did some research on this, and it turns out this is an amazing animal called a sea squirt, uh, mm -hmm. which is a, uh, in a larval form, swims along the ocean hunting. Uh, then it becomes an adult, plants itself on a rock, and filter feeds from then on. Huh. And when it plants itself on the rock and metamorphosizes to an adult, the first thing it does, it eats its brain because it never needs it anymore. Right? Wow. And you're like, whoa. And so he he made this distinction. The only reason we need brains is to move around in the physical world. Wow. That's why we have brains. Uh, anything else doesn't need a brain. And so then you kind of, that gives you access to looking at, okay, this is why autonomous cars are really hard. Because the, the uh, real-time adaptive nature of driving, just avoiding a pothole or avoiding two cyclists where one is passing the other and you have to go a little bit further. There's a million of those that an autonomous car or robot has very huge difficulty with, but yeah. is trivial if you have a brain. Yes. Right? And I, and I just love that, that metaphor around it. So uh, brains help us navigate the physical world. Now, that also gives us an experience of time in a very specific way. Right. right? And the minute you take psychedelics, you blow through all those layers, you blow through the uh, the, the time limitations, space limitations, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. No, man, so much coming up from here. The um, There's a great book titled The Master and His Emissary. Uh, the author's name escapes me. He's coming on the show soon. He's one of my favorites. I can't believe I can't think of his name right now. Embarrassing. But he gets okay. into the talks about hemispheric specialization, right, where... We all know left brain people are more orderly, linguistic, et cetera. Right brain people are more creative, mystical, et cetera. But it, uh, and this is also sort of secondhand through his conversations with Jordan Peterson. Peterson said, oh, well, it's like left brain is explored territory. Right brain is unexplored territory. So I guess you need it's actually the thing that's converting your spatial experience into this metaphorical linguistic hmm. uh, thing. So it's just really I'd never heard that, that you needed a, everything that moves has a brain that maps directly onto the explored, unexplored territory, hemisphere yeah. specialization. It, uh, um, and, and, it, and then that leads you down a bunch of 
the, then that explains a whole bunch of things, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, if you sit on a rock and meditate for 10 years, you're now, you don't really need a brain. You just need to have, you just need to be. Yeah. And the brain helps you do physical adaptation to your local environment. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's fascinating stuff. Um, well, we could probably just get lost in all kinds of rabbit holes for a long time, but I promise I'd get you out of here sooner than I have not already. So let me ask you one more question before I do get you out of here. Your path, I think you said you've pretty much become a Bitcoin maximalist over time. I'd just like to hear you describe that path a little bit because most there's a very few small subset of people that seem to just get Bitcoin only from the beginning, like God bless yeah. them. But most, the vast majority of people have to kind of like go through this whole web of other things before. It's like you, you're interested in Bitcoin, you go into crypto land, and then you end up back at Bitcoin after a certain yeah. amount of time and experience. So I just wanted to hear your journey. Yeah. So, um, you know, the decentralized nature of Bitcoin and the unstoppability of it was what got me super excited. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, the fact that you're now, and being a bit of a libertarian at heart, you now are free of government capital controls, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, like in Pakistan, for example, a few years ago, they just took 20% of every bank account yeah. and drained it for the they central government. 90% in uh, Lebanon a couple of weeks Lebanon, ago. Lebanon, they just devalued everything by 90%, right? Like, like it's like, like come on. Um, so the idea that we can break free of that uh, tyranny is something really powerful and important to do. Um, the Jeff Booth was the one that kind of clicked me into why Bitcoin versus the other altcoins, because you have these three triangular points of, of security, decentralization, and scalability. Right. And Bitcoin came along and solved for the first two. It solves for security and yeah. it solves for decentralization. Okay. Yeah. Initially, it did not solve for scalability. Yeah. You can't, the trilemma, right? You can't solve all three at layer one. That was the, that was the, the theory, right? Yeah. Um, and then you have all these altcoins popping up, Ethereum and Cardano and Solana and et cetera, et cetera, um, that solve for the scalability, but you compromise on either security or decentralization. Exactly. You yeah. saw that with FTX, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, with the Lightning Network, you now saw, because the scalability side is an engineering problem, not an invention problem. Yeah. Right. And so I was always fascinated by that distinction. Uh, mm -hmm. Like Ray Kurzweil used to talk about solar energy, the scaling of it is now an engineering problem. It's not an invention problem. Once you right. have the ability to gather solar energy, now one also, versus one to many thing. Yeah. Just as, as an example in solar, people people's minds always want to hit that next limitation. They go, well, the solar panels aren't scalable and use all these rare earths and therefore you can never get you know fully solar. And it turns out they've now found a substance called perovskites, which mm -hmm. are like a salt that have the property of conducting and gathering solar energy, which is widely abundant. So now you can put this on a film on a window and you can collect solar and it's a widely abundant and super cheap. So you've just solved for that whole thing, right? Yeah. So there's, we always get to that next level uh, when we are, when push comes to shove. So Bitcoin solved for the two that had never been solved for before in history, the decentralization and the security. Uh, and that was magical. Yeah. Um, um, and now we have scalability. And when you have scalability, then you basically obviate the need for any other uh, thing. Now, I think there'll be lots of other use cases that are that don't need to be Bitcoin related, land titles on the blockchain, et cetera, as long as you have some decent 
permanent record of stuff, intellectual property, trademarks, et cetera, yeah. that can be, it can run on as long as you have uh, the timestamp and the the immutable nature. Um, you, you don't need scalability uh, in some of these systems and you don't need uh, uh, security uh, yeah. in that's in the sense as long as once you have the transmuted you have the you have the and in lots of public sector environments are like that so one of the things i talk about i speak a lot to governments and heads of state yeah. and i say to them um bitcoin will take out 80 percent of government functionality or blockchain right because almost all government functionality is authenticated yes yes you have the driver's license yes you have the fishing permit yes you have the building permit and now you can put all that on a blockchain and you don't have to do most government functionality, right? right. So I, I was actually asked a few years ago to do a talk for the Republican National Leadership Conference um, in the US on, and I'm like, really, I'm not sure you have the right guy. And they're like, no, no, one of our donors is a big fan. And so they insisted. And so we were back and forth on what the title of my talk was going to be. It was Eric Cantor was the speaker of the house at the time. And the we settled on the following, the title of my talk was, how would you drop the cost of government 10X within 10 years? Because you could do it with blockchain and right. Bitcoin, yeah. right? Uh, but you have to embrace technology. Uh, yeah. And at that point, there was a big issue. They're like, whoa, we're Republicans. We can't sell technology to our base. <laughs> and that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> and you're like, wow, what a political nightmare that you can't embrace technology. That's right? back to that That's, cultural immune system, right? Yeah, bingo. Yeah. So. Uh, I think politically we have some huge issues, uh, but again, I think we solved those at the city-state level, which we're starting to see more and more of. But I think uh, over time, Bitcoin becomes the world's money system. Wow. Awesome. Well, Salim, this has been a very wide-ranging, fascinating conversation. I feel my brain stretched into new dimensions, uh, lots of things to think about. Where can people find you on the internet? Um, Twitter handle is at Salim Ismail. Website is salimismail.com. Our community is openexo.com. And our community is 18,000 consultants and entrepreneurs and technologists and innovators that use the model in the book to build new org structures. Um, and uh, I've had a pretty wild journey of it over the last few years um, as the book propagates. I'm right now finishing the second edition, uh, which Peter is co-authoring. Mm. Um, and so we'll, we'll release that in the next few weeks uh, and we're turning it into a subscription model so you can have access to 700 case studies of EXOs as a database. Um, uh, we have a great, uh, can I put out a data point that's just unbelievable? Yeah. So we have a, a, a survey, a, a, dime, a quantified score on how EXO friendly, how scalable, agile, flexible is your org structure. Right? And we ask two questions per 10 attributes mm -hmm. and you answer 25 questions. And we give you a quantified score. When we launched the book seven years ago, we ranked the Fortune 100 against this index. So how how flexible, agile, to what extent is IBM using lean startup thinking? To what extent is GE's org structure decentralized or not? And we ranked it, and I did a segment on CNBC Squawk Box saying, here's an index of the most agile, flexible companies at the top and the most rigid and, and, and inflexible at the bottom. We just did a seven-year trailing analysis on that index. So how did they do? And we looked at the top 10 versus the bottom 10 that are the most agile and flexible versus the least central. Uh, revenue growth of the top 10 is 3x, the revenue growth of the bottom 10. Profitability is 6x higher. 
return on assets, 11x, uh, but shareholder returns, okay, CAG or compound annual growth rate, the top 10 outperformed the bottom 10 by 40 times over seven years, just in the Fortune 100. Right? Wow. The umbrella thesis being, as the external world becomes more volatile, your ability to adapt is going to drive market value. And now we can prove it. Six, we can beat every CEO in the world over the head with this and say, if you're not organized in this model, you just won't deliver the outcomes. So uh, we've not yet marketed that. But when that comes out, I think that'll make a big uh, impact. So we're pretty excited about the future. Wow, that is super cool and makes a lot of sense, right? In the age of great upheaval and change, adaptivity is at a premium. Um, That's right. So people that are interested, our, our openexo.com is where you can join. And uh, we're actually a fully Web3 enabled platform. Okay. So we have our own, in fact, we have our own crypto that we roll just to act as a means of exchange in our ecosystem. Mm, very cool. Well, thank you again. I mean, this great conversation lots to think about and i feel my head a little bit swollen after this so thank you um <laughs> now you know why i'm bold <laughs> thinking about this stuff is uh is you know it's so hard you i think you said it really well trying to navigate the limitations of language when you grapple some of these concepts is very very difficult yes yeah and it's even if you can develop better language for yourself, there's still the challenge of getting consensus on the new language in the world. And it's, yeah, it's very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, thank you again for doing this. Uh, well, I'd love to have you on again sometime. Great to be here.